This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This episode of Pass the Mic is brought to you by Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Stay tuned for a special interview with the authors Justin Gibney and Michael Weir later in the show. And don't forget that you can get Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement, right now, wherever books are sold. Pray on Just a little while longer Pray on Just a little while longer Pray on Just a little while longer Everything will be all right. Fight on just a little while longer. Fight on just a little while longer. Fight on just a little while longer. Everything will be all right. Fight on just a little while longer. Fight on just a little while longer. Fight on just a little while longer. Everything will be all right. Hold on. Just a little while longer Hold on Just a little while longer Hold on Just a little while longer Everything will be all Hold on Just a little while longer Hold on Just a little while longer Hold hold on Just a little while longer Everything will be alright Hold on 
just a little while longer. Hold on, just a little while longer. Hold on, just a little while longer. Everything will be Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. The song says, hold on just a little while longer. It's a powerful song, right? (laughs) My question is, what do you do when you feel like you've held on long enough? What do you do when you feel like you want to hold on, but your grip is slipping? What do you do when you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, I think that's how many of us feel. I think that's why many of you tuned in. You're frustrated, you're angry. And we're trying to figure out how do we hold on? How can we hold on? In the middle of everything that's happening right now, is it even possible for us to hold on? I'm standing here in front of the mural of George Floyd right here at the Graffiti Bridge in Pensacola. It's a very important part of our city. And I'm standing in front of this mural because I think it's important for us to name this. George Floyd was murdered. He was not killed. He was murdered. He didn't just die. We all saw it. It's on the tape. He was murdered. Someone who was callous enough to put his knee on this man's neck, this image bearer's neck, and put his full weight upon him, even though he cried out, I can't breathe. He cried out for his mother. He cried out. He screamed and people still did not respond. George Floyd was murdered. But I'm not just here for George Floyd. I'm also here for Breonna Taylor. I'm here for Ahmaud Arbery. I'm here for all the names that you just saw before this came on. I'm here for Tymar Crawford. I'm here for so many other names, nameless, faceless people who don't have hashtags, who didn't have body cam footage or other people filming. I'm here because our lives matter. I'm here because our lives matter, not just to people, not just to ourselves, but black lives matter to God. Black lives matter to the creator, the one who crafted and created us in his image. And I have to be honest with you, I I know, you know, as pastors, what we're supposed to do is give you some flowery sermon. And I don't know if I'm going to really have that today for you. This is part lament, maybe a little bit venting. It is theological, I believe. It is truthful, but it's emotive. It's how I'm truly feeling. And I think it would be helpful for me to show how I'm truly feeling so that maybe you can enter into that. Maybe we can process this together. You know, when... um. Whenever these situations come up, people always ask, that's how are you feeling? You get that question sometimes? People ask, how are you feeling about all this that's going on? And I know because I'm a pastor, because I talk and because I say all these things, that I'm supposed to think through it in this well-orbed way. I'm supposed to have a pithy answer to everything, right? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I woke up the next day after the George Floyd 
murder video had been released and I I remember I felt so many emotions all at once. Couldn't sleep, had nightmares. I vacillated in that moment. I felt indignant, felt furious. A few hours later, I felt hopeless and helpless. A few days later, I felt despondent and sad. When I come out here and I see all these people who are standing together, I feel hopeful. I feel excited. Today, I don't know. I don't know how I feel. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're feeling all these things at once, as we would say, feeling all the things. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that. It's important for us to acknowledge that we are angry. We are upset. We are furious. We are indignant. We're despondent. We're frustrated. We're overwhelmed. We're tired. We're exhausted. Fatigued from this world. Weary of the ways of the world. It's important for us to name that. You know, when I was growing up, I looked around at other Christians and I looked around at my parents and I looked around at all these examples of pastors. And one of the things that I saw is I felt like because of the fact that they were so strong and they always knew how to hold things together and keep things together, I felt like because they were so strong, I was not allowed to ever be angry. Nobody explicitly told me you're not allowed to be angry. That was never told to me, but I felt like I couldn't express my frustration and my anger. You know, I, I, I felt subtly like God didn't want my anger. I felt like God didn't want those real raw emotions. Really and truly I, underlying that, I felt like God didn't want any of my emotions. And then I read the Bible, right? You really read the Bible and then you read the Psalms and you read some of the prophets. You read Isaiah and you read Amos and you read Micah, you read David in the Psalms. And then you start to see that there is this level to which people are able to engage their full selves, their full emotions. They're able to come to God fully embodied in pain, in anger, in frustration, in hopelessness. They're able to express how they are feeling. And God takes it. Doesn't mean God doesn't respond to it, but God receives it and it's in holy writ, it's in scriptures, it's in our canon. And so what it shows to me is that maybe God can handle all of these emotions. Maybe he can handle everything. Maybe he can handle the stream of consciousness that we're feeling. Maybe he can handle when we get furious and upset. Maybe he can handle when we scream and handle when we cry that the God of the universe who created us as multi-dimensional, dynamic, embodied, emotional human beings knew that we would have some turmoil and knew that we could handle that turmoil, knew that he could be a place where we could be our full selves. Maybe many of us feel that we can't express these things, you know, the stereotypes, can't express the anger, right? Much good that's done us, <laughs> you know? much good that's done us. They still kill us. They still marginalize us. They still put us off to the side. They still stab us in the back figuratively and literally. They still oppress us. But here's the thing that I've, in the midst of all of my emotions, I've come to, you know, we're labeled as so many different things. We're labeled too emotional. We're labeled too much. We're labeled too aggressive. <laughs> we're labeled too angry, all these things. But here's the reality, in spite of all the labels, in spite of all the oppression, in spite of everything that we face, we're still here. We are still here. Our people still exist. We still stand up. 
fully embodied with our shoulders back and our heads held high, still praying to God, still praising God, still worshiping him. I was here at the graffiti bridge last night and people were protesting and saying no justice, no peace. They were protesting and saying black lives matter and at the same time worshiping and at the same time enjoying hip hop and at the same time fully embodied dynamic. And it was just such a beautiful picture of man, God has created us this way and we as members of the church should be able to enter into that as well. And, and let me make it clear, I'm not here at the graffiti bridge because I feel like I have the answers to all of your questions. I'm not here because I feel like whatever someone asks me and however someone, you know, whatever inquiry someone would have, I would have the best answer to it. No, there have been people here who are running these protests and these observances. I think of names like Kyle and Haley and Caleb and so many others, and they're, they're teaching me from afar. It's not, I'm not here because I feel like I know better than them or know better than anyone else. I'm here not to speak to the people who are here every night. I'm here to speak to the church. I'm here to speak to my tribe. I'm here to speak to the people who claim to represent the name of Jesus, the liberating Jesus, the Jesus who was hung high and stretched wide, the Jesus who was a victim of state-sanctioned violence, the Jesus who was crucified by the Roman regime, the Jesus who resisted. That's the Jesus we serve. But often our faith doesn't look like that. Doesn't look like that. Doesn't embody the resistance doesn't embody what God has called us to embody. So I know there's a few people that are watching this, right? There's some people you're looking for me to convince you. You're welcome to listen, but I'm not here to convince. I'm not here to convince you of what we know to be true. Not here to make the implicit explicit. Not here to do it. But it's okay, you can listen. And perhaps God may move upon you to where you don't need to be convinced or persuaded. I'm here also for the people I know that, that will be watching who would say, we shouldn't talk about these things. We're the church. We should rise above these things. And it's true we have a transcendent answer. We have a transcendent God. We have a real and present God who sits in with us in the middle of pain, yet still can see above, yet still is sovereign, yet still is outside of time, even though he created it. But what I think we miss is that we have a unique vantage point that the scriptures tell us not just part of the story, but the whole story, not just part of our experience, but the whole experience. And I think we have a unique vantage point enough to say that the pain of our past can become the power of our present. That what we've been through in the past does not have to define and cause us to, to lose hope or to lose our agency or to lose our authority, but actually the things that we have gone through in the past can become powerful expressions of our now, of justice in this moment. I know those are those group of people that are going to believe that. Then there are those group of people who believe we don't really have anything to say. It's our subjective experience, right? It's our subjective experience. How can we tell people what, what we believe in this regard? How can we tell people outside of Jesus and outside of the gospel? I, I, first of all, I would say that this is closely connected. This is the essence of the gospel, that the gospel is not just vertical, but horizontal. The gospel is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself likewise. And upon these two commands, the entirety of all the law and the prophets hinge. Gardner Taylor, one of the greatest preachers um, in, in our American history, he said once that, that it's not really as subjective as people think. You see, our experience is unique. He says that a disregarded 
and disallowed community actually has the objective truth, the objective authority to speak into a society that has excluded it. So actually, our subjective experience is actually powerful. It's a powerful corrective to the state. It's a powerful corrective to the systems of injustice. And then there's another group of people. This is the group of people I'm really here for. The group of people who are in Pensacola. The group of people who claim the name of Jesus in the city of Pensacola. Can I make something clear here? This is not just a Minneapolis issue. It's not just a Louisville issue. It's not just a Brunswick, Georgia issue. It's not just a Sanford, Florida issue. It's not just a Baltimore issue. It's not just a New York issue or a Chicago issue. It's not just the issue out there. It's an issue right here where we live. That right here where we live, there are people who are experiencing things you never know about. There are no cameras to see it. There are no video recordings that we can see and then come into solidarity that go viral. There's none of that, but it still exists. There were no video cameras to see the men who were lynched in the early 1900s. I've been to the Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, sponsored by an Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson. I've been there and I've seen the Escambia County mural, the, the pillar that's hanging in Escambia, for Escambia County, where real black men were lynched in this city. We have a history too, we have to reckon with. And so I hope that you'll enter into this with me. I hope that for the next few minutes you'll enter in as we open up what I believe God is trying to say in this moment, but that we engage with it honestly. I don't have it all put together and flowery for you today. That's not really what I think would be most helpful for you. I just wanna help process this with you. Maybe you can help me process this. And maybe it'll give us some strength, just a little more strength to hold on. What does our gospel have to offer to the black experience? It's a question that was prompted by one of my friends. I was having a conversation with him and he said he came to this realization at a certain point in his life that, that my gospel, the things that I believe, the things that I preach say and, and adhere to, it doesn't have anything to offer to the black community. It doesn't have anything to offer to a disaffected community. What he wasn't saying is that he didn't have Jesus to offer them, he didn't have the, the, the core tenets of the gospel, the fundamentals, but to the lived experience of blackness in the American society. His gospel didn't have anything to offer. Didn't have anything to offer for times of injustice. Didn't have anything to offer for times of great pain and tragedy. And it was something that I've been thinking about. Whenever people ask me about how, do, how am I feeling about this particular context, the scripture that I always tend to lean upon, the scripture that I can't seem to get away from, is Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, Moses, Moses is employed, he's sanctioned as a liberator for the people of Israel, for God's people. And it's so fascinating because Moses is, is really an unlikely candidate, yet a likely candidate, right? Moses knew what it was like to be in the empire, but yet at the same time knew, had his cultural heritage. He was both in, he was ambidextrous, he was a hybrid. He was able to speak the truth of the king and speak the truth and the language of the Egyptian uh, monarch, but yet at the same time was able to identify with the Hebrew experience. He was a hybrid, but he was unlikely because he was the person who was seen to be, he was the person who was seen to be unworthy unworthy I mean think about it he had killed an Egyptian guard he was running away he was tending and herding sheep in Midian he was the type of person that we would have said 
he's not connected to the struggle. He's not connected to the, to the essence of what is going on with Hebrew slavery in Egypt. But Moses is chosen by God and it's interesting how he's chosen. I think we should just take a minute and look at that Exodus chapter three. It, it says that Moses was actually walking and tending and herding his sheep and then he sees a bush that's burning. He sees a fire and the fire grabs his attention. And so he goes and goes up to the fire, stops what he's doing and interacts with the fire. And surprisingly, in the midst of the fire that catches his attention, something that's supposed to be destructive, God speaks. Don't miss this. God spoke from the fire. It reminds me of Daniel when the when the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are in the fiery furnace because they would not bow to the king and then there's a fourth man who shows up in the fire who looks like the son of God see there's a there's a theophany a Christophany a pre-incarnate um, expression a pre-incarnate uh, revelation of God's presence in Jesus and Jesus shows up and stands next to them it's interesting how fire God can start to speak in the middle of fire God spoke to Moses a liberating message to Moses to take to Pharaoh in the midst of fire God spoke to the Babylonian king in Daniel through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing next to them and he spoke from the fire. What is God saying from the fires that we see that are happening around us? Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that God sanctioned it. I'm not saying that God desires it. I'm not saying that God wants us to go out and destroy public property. I'm not saying that God wants us to burn buildings or do anything like that. It's not what I'm saying, but, but I certainly believe that God can still speak in the midst of it. What is God speaking from the fire? What is God speaking in the place that's supposed to be destructive, that's supposed to be uh, dis disruptive, that's supposed to be something that, that is, is perceived by other people to be, to be illegitimate, perceived by other people to not be helpful but God is still speaking in the middle of it and God stops Moses with the fire gets his attention and says Moses first thing he says he says I've seen I've seen the oppression of my people I've seen the affliction of my people I've seen their misery I've seen their misery what do you see today what is the church seeing what has the church tuned its eyes, focused its eyes to see? That's my question. What are we seeing right now? You know, God sees in, in different ways than how we see. God sees from a perch. God sees 30,000 foot, maybe even higher than that. That's probably not even a proper analogy for how he sees. He sees the expanse of time all at the same time. God sees things that we cannot see ourselves. God sees things that we cannot comprehend ourselves. And many of us we have a seeing problem. We are blind to the things that we are supposed to see. We're blind to the fully orb nature of how things are supposed to be around us. And, and this is the problem. Many of us don't see rightly. We don't see deeply enough. We don't see sharply enough. And so here's what we see. We see George Floyd, but we don't see a system that is set up that has built on unjust practices that necessarily marginalizes from its inception black and brown bodies. We don't see that. We just see the fruit. We don't see the root. We just see the fact that there is an, an achievement gap in our educational system, but we don't see the fact that certain people have more access to education and better education and better resources than others. We, we just see the fruit, not the root. 
We see that there is a fatherless epidemic in our black communities, but we do not see the war on drugs and mass incarceration and the disproportionate ways in which black and brown bodies have been incarcerated in our society. We see the fruit, not the root. We see Ahmaud Arbery shot and killed and we bemoan it, but we don't see the decades of conditioning of subconscious and unconscious bias that we're not willing to address, we're not willing to confront, and we're not willing to, to, to challenge in our society. We see that our churches are segregated. We see that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in this country, but we're not willing to address. We cannot see the history of why that's the case. We can't see the history of why we're segregated. We can't see the history of why we're separated. We cannot see. And God is asking us to sharpen our focus. He's asking us to see beyond just the fruit and to see the root of things. That's why whenever people speak out upon these things, I say, that's great and that's awesome. Thank you for speaking out. But when are you gonna speak out when it's not as obvious? When are you gonna speak out when there are not things that you can clearly see? When are you gonna speak out, listen, when there's no video? when there's no smoking gun, just to assure that you're right. When are we gonna see each other? When are we gonna see the humanity of those who have been marginalized? When are we gonna see the humanity of those who have been oppressed? When are we gonna see church? When are we gonna see rightly? You know, uh, I was watching the Netflix series, When They See Us, I think it's appropriately named Ava DuVernay. It's about the Central Park Five. And it's, I think it's so appropriately named because the, the, the intimation isn't that they don't see us, but it's they don't see rightly. <laughs> they see us, but what do they see when they see us? And that's my question, what do you see? What do you see in your community? When is the tired rhetoric going to end about what we see in our community? When are we gonna stop talking about and diagnosing fruit, but we're gonna get down to the root of what is really happening? When are we gonna peel back the layers? It's uncomfortable, it doesn't look good, it looks dirty, but God requires us to see as he does. I've seen the affliction and the oppression of my people, and just like I see their sin, I see their oppression. And that's what God, God is calling us to see. What do you see? And it's what you see, same thing that God does. I'm here with Justin Gibney and Michael Weir of The End Campaign, the authors of Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. The idea of compassion and conviction in our civic engagement, it, it's something that not a lot of us are necessarily actively seeking to try to maintain. What we're trying to do is win, what we're trying to do is make sure that the application of some group's values um, are proper with uh, regards to the oppressed and regards to the least of these. But as we seek to maintain compassion and conviction in our civic engagement, Michael, what do you suggest are as disciplines that will keep Christians rooted in the broader understanding of how these two forces work together? So practically, what are some things that we can maintain? You've mentioned some of these things before, and I think it's been very helpful for people to hear you express this. So what do you suggest as, as disciplines practically uh, that can maintain and help Christians remain rooted in the broader understanding of compassion and conviction working together. Yeah, so so right, so there are 
sort of, you know, classic uh, traditional spiritual disciplines that are vital. And some I think are especially vital just given the, the times we're in. I mean, obviously uh, prayer is, is not just like a perfunctory, perfunctory thing. If, if, if you're not, uh, you don't have a, a rich prayer life, um, you're going to find it more difficult to uh, in the moment respond in the way that God would, would have you respond. Um, I also think in this like saturated media culture environment, in this time when so many of us are doing intense advocacy and in the streets and just working hard. And if you have day jobs that aren't political, then in your free time, you're trying to advocate. Um, solitude and silence are just are just critical. The political technology is so much more adept at sort of psychological manipulation and sort of just overwhelming you with everybody else's ideas and opinions that you need you need to be especially if you're in this work you need to find the time and it doesn't gotta it doesn't have to be a week <laughs> uh, you just need to find the time to be with god and, for for an extended period of time and go back to the word and understand what what god wants from you and then i think there are like these modern disciplines um so i always think about um you know, if your social media feed, your timeline is, uh, if your last 15 posts are about bashing your political opponents and affirming sort of your own political side, you might want to, you might want to think about whether you're in an echo chamber of your own making. Uh, if you're only sharing ideas that kind of come from your, your certain, uh, your tribe, uh, if you're not allowing for other inputs, that doesn't mean you have to pretend to like ideas you don't like or ideas that you don't think are beneficial, but being able to understand where different people are coming from, being able to, um, uh, to, to not be suffocated by the boxes that folks try and put us in, uh, I think is uh, absolutely critical. And then I just say it's important to be involved in local communities. So often we're involved in sort of abstractions and I love social media. I've met so many wonderful people but if, if you don't know folks on the ground, if you're not in difficult situations, uh, in, 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 if you're not in community with people who are difficult that you can't run away from or log off from, uh, you're, you're not going to have an understanding of you know, what, what's really confronting people uh, in, in their lives. And so the local church is vital and, and finding ways to serve in your local community are vital, not just you know, for for the value that your service brings to public, but for the way that 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 connectivity is going to influence the way you think about things. Yeah, that's really helpful. Justin, what would you say disciplines and practices that that keep Christians rooted, um, especially in a time where it's easy to kind of ride whatever wave? And I think it's interesting because that's been a, a little bit of our frustration, especially, um, you know, with black Christians as far as the broader white evangelical church and, and some of the things that we've seen in the American church that it seems to be like there's this surge in energy of excitement um, when there is a maybe a, a heinous killing, you know, by police. There's a surge of excitement, then that fades, right? And so, how do we how do we make this more of a consistent presence, using the disciplines and using certain practices that'll keep us rooted in this broader understanding? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I have to do is just have some people around you who who keep you honest, uh, who aren't necessarily gonna be, you know, uh, so forceful on one side or the other, but they'll make you. Uh, run everything that you're believing and saying through biblical scrutiny. 
I think that's so important. One of the things that I tell people to do on either side of, of the aisle is list six things that your side gets wrong. Uh, if you can't list six things that your side gets wrong, then you need to be a little more informed because what happens is we can get so caught up in what somebody else is doing wrong. And the parties are so good at this. They'll point and say, look at Pelosi, look at Pelosi, look at Pelosi. And then you have all these other folks, you have Trump and everybody else doing what they want to do because you're not focused on them. But you're actually the one in a position to hold them accountable. And the same thing. Look at Trump, look at Trump, look at Trump. And they're over here doing what they want to do. Christians can't really be involved in that. So I do try to tell people to make sure that you're listing those things and running what you think through biblical scrutiny, because it's so easy for us to get caught up on a narrative. And I think we really have to be intellectually honest when it comes to some of these narratives that we're pushing, because, as you know, man, a narrative is supposed to give context to the facts. Right. It's, it's not they're not supposed to lead the facts or cause mm-hmm. us to ignore the facts. Uh, and, and too often that's 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 what happens. And then I would just say, you know, this is truly a moment for Christians where we really need to think about faith and really think about, about what faith does for us at this moment. Because to me, at this moment, faith has to give us moral imagination. Right. We have to not only be able to see what happened in the past, which is very important. You, you got to see that what's going on also what's going on now we have to be able to see what could be and what should be Mm. right and if we don't have the imagination as christians to do that Mm. i don't know how anybody else is going to be able to do that and that's what faith does for you right Uh, in a very practical way you can apply that moral imagination to say no no i'm not just going to be focused on today or yesterday what could be what should be because my god is bigger than all of this and i think those are some things that but but having that group of friends man that's like man that doesn't make (laughs) that doesn't make sense or or whatever is very important who folks who not just gonna go along with what you say but are gonna challenge you and even maybe even join you about it here and there to to straighten you out (laughs) well gentlemen the book is compassion and conviction the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement justin gibbony michael weir of the end campaign thank you so much your work and thank you for doing the hard work, the difficult work of giving us a framework for faithful civic engagement. We appreciate it. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. So God first tells Moses in Exodus chapter three, he says, I have seen the oppression of my people. Then the next thing he says is that I've heard their cries and I'm concerned about their suffering. The second question that I have for you today is not what do you see, but the second question is what do you hear? Are you hearing rightly? Are you hearing what you are supposed to hear? Are you hearing the cries? God. It's so interesting. It reminds me when I, whenever I read this passage of Genesis chapter 4, when God says that Abel's blood cries out to him from the ground. That Abel, even though he had been passed, been deceased, been killed, murdered by his brother, 
still cried out to God. The presence of his blood within the ground cried out to him. God can hear it. And then here in, in Exodus chapter 3, he says, I've heard the cries of my people. And so it seems to me that God hears at a different frequency than we do. God hears at a different level than we do. God hears on a deeper level than what we do. And so the question is not just what do we see, but what do we hear? What is it that we're hearing? What is it, better question, that we're listening to? What is it that we're allowing to shape our perception of the events around us? I want to challenge you with something. I want to challenge you to prioritize the voices of those who have been marginalized. I want to challenge you to prioritize the voices and the words of those who have been oppressed, those who have experienced things, those who have, who have experiences that you maybe can't even understand. Because in that, what we see is there is empathy. In that, we start to develop a Christ-like character for suffering, for pain, for hurt. And the problem of many of us isn't that we don't have things to say. And it's not even necessarily that we don't have things that we see, but society doesn't listen to us. Society doesn't hear us. And what do we as a church, what do we as the people of God hear? What do we hear first? God saying. What is God saying in the middle of everything that's going on? I know it's easy to import what we think God is saying, but what is really, what is, what is God actually saying? What is he saying right now in this moment about this Kairos time that we're living in? But then what do my neighbors say about it? What do the people of different denominations say about it? What do the people of different ethnicities say about it? What do the people of different genders say about this? What do they say about the things that are happening? And am I willing to submit myself to listening to them? You see, sometimes we, we use this blanket statement. We're not listening to each other. We're not listening to each other. We're not listening to each other. And often when we say that those people are the people who are talking and being heard, right? But the reality is that the people we're really not listening to, it's not each other, but it's the people who we consider to be inferior to us. It's the people who we consider to be less than us. We would never say it. But they're the people who have different opinions. They're the people of a different party persuasion. They're the people who we assume just don't get it. And God was good enough to hear and listen to the cries of his people. He could have tuned it out. Think about it. They were crying in a way that he could hear over the angels singing holy, holy, holy at the throne. That's what the Bible says, that the angels perpetually sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in the throne room of heaven. Yet still, God's cries, he could hear them. He could hear. He had the capacity to listen to other people. He had the capacity to listen to his creation. And if God can listen to people, if God can hear people, why can't we? What do you hear? What are you listening to? What are you allowing to shape your world? And are you hearing the same things that God hears? After God says to Moses that he sees the oppression and the affliction of his people, after he says that he hears their cries because of their slave masters and he's concerned about their suffering, then he says, I'm going to come down and do something about it. Now, this is the interesting thing. Many of us ask the question, when is God going to do something about all this? Or maybe you're watching, you're not necessarily even a believer in Jesus. Maybe you're just tuning in because you're curious what this church is going to say about justice, what this church is going to say about the issues in our community. We're not going to get it all right. But what I can tell you is God does care and God does intend to do something. But here's the interesting thing. 
that God tells Moses in verse 10, I I'm concerned about it. I want to come and do something about it. So I'm going to send you. He says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. In other words, the divine liberator needed a human collaborator. In other words, the great chain breaker needed to employ a human pick lock. <laughs> he needed to employ someone who could pick the locks of the people. And so often, here's what we do. We claim that we want God to fix something, but we don't want to get involved in what God is trying to fix. We claim that we want liberation, but we don't follow collaboration. We claim that we want to help people, but we're not willing to work and put in the hard work that's necessary for this to happen. And what I see in so many of our lives and so many of our hearts and so many of our situations is that we are not willing to do the work. We're not willing to do what God has called us to do. We're not willing to partake and participate as co-conspirators in the liberating work of God and, and to work alongside the Holy Spirit that is on the inside of us to do what he has called for us to do. And so the question isn't just what do we see and what do we hear, but also what are we going to do about it? And if the divine liberator needs to employ a human collaborator, can he find you with him? Can he find you open? Can he find you ready? Can he find you willing to participate in the work of liberation? You know, there are so many people who say, there needs to be healing. We need healing in our society. We need healing in our community. We need healing in our culture. And all that is true. And, and, and I affirm all that healing is necessary. But the problem is many of us ask the question, we need healing in, in, in our society. And why isn't it coming? Well, the healing isn't coming because we haven't had surgery yet. And the surgery hasn't happened yet because we haven't gotten a diagnosis and the diagnosis hasn't happened because we haven't admitted that we have a problem. As one of my friends said, Jamar Tisby, he said, there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession. There can be no confession without truth. What are we going to do about the world around us? We cannot just wax eloquent and pontificate about all these things that we see. We need to go out and do something about it. There are so many different ways you can get involved in the city of Pensacola. There are people who are organizing protests and marches here, right here at the Graffiti Bridge, at a historic part of our town, obviously, we know that. They're the Dream Defenders. They're doing sheriff's forums and other things that, that are organized to, to create community conversations. There's Achieve Escambia that works to address educational inequity. There's Bantu Cola, which is about supporting black-owned businesses. There are so many ways you can get involved. But do not beg for liberation if you're not willing to participate in collaboration. That God actually desires for us to work alongside of him in the great commission, the co-mission. That God is doing the work, but he allows us to partner with him in it. He allows us to be his agents of reconciliation, truth, and justice in the world. And when I think about that, when I think about that we are the agents of reconciliation, that we are the agents of justice, that we are the agents of truth, I think about the fact that church, we stand proudly in a long tradition of people who held on. We stand proudly in a long tradition of people who held their ground, who stood firm in the midst of oppressive situations, who stood firm in the midst of injustice, who stood against it, who rooted their faith deeply in the soil of the ground that they stood on. And they stood up and declared that I serve a just God. And this just God desires a just society. And this just God desires my collaboration. The divine liberator desires my human collaboration so that I can stand up. That's what gave them the power to hold on. I stand in the tradition of Elodo Equiano. 
a slave who wrote down his slave journals and archives so that we could hear and we could see it from his perspective. I stand in the tradition of Sojourner Truth, who when they tried to erase and edit out her black womanhood, she stood up and asked the question rhetorically, ain't I a woman? I stand in the tradition of Frederick Douglass. I stand in the tradition of Ida B. Wells. I stand in the tradition of Howard Thurman, who created a gospel, an understanding of the gospel for the disinherited and the dispossessed and the disallowed. I stand in the tradition of Dr. King, who stood up and he said that he wasn't going to allow the injustice of our society to shape and embitter him, but that he was going to do something about it with love and with grace and with truth. I stand in the tradition of preachers like Gardner Taylor and Samuel DeWitt Proctor. I stand in the tradition of, of, of Fannie Lou Hamer. I stand in the tradition of Rosa Parks. I stand in the tradition of Sabrina Fulton, who after they gunned down her, her son, Trayvon Martin, she decided that she wasn't going to allow that to infect her with hate and bitterness and anguish. I stand in the tradition of Lucy McBath. After they gunned down her son, Jordan Davis, she said, I'm going to go to Congress and change the laws myself. I stand in the tradition of Greg and Diane Burns, who looked down racism as they grew up in the Deep South and still did not allow that to affect them and still created a mega church and still created a church of reconciliation. I stand in the tradition of activists in Baltimore and New York and Selma, Alabama, and yes, here in Pensacola. And I stand in the tradition of a Jesus who knows what it's like to be marginalized, who knows what it's like to be dispossessed, who knows what it's like to be convicted by a kangaroo court of injustice, and who knows what it's like to be killed by state-sanctioned violence. That's the tradition I stand in. I stand in a tradition of people who say, even though it may be dark right now, joy comes in the morning. I stand in a tradition of people who say, even though my head may be bowed right now I still can look to the hills and see where my help comes from I stand in a tradition of people who say in the face of injustice in the face of hatred in the face of bitterness in the face of looking at someone like George Lloyd or Tymar Crawford or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery we will hold on we will see better we will hear better we will do better hold on just a little while longer. People have held on for you. Hold on for others. Hold on for your children. Hold on for your grandchildren. Hold on for future generations. Hold on because the gospel demands it of us. Hold on, church. Everything will be all right. Change will come. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.